This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Hello, I'm Tyler Rye, an assistant professor of entrepreneurship here at the Wharton School. Today I have with me David Sims, who's been involved in various leadership capacities over the past 30 years with an organization called Opportunity International, which operates in 28 countries, using microfinance tools to try and address problems associated with global poverty. So David, thank you very much for being here with me today. I'm looking forward to getting some of your insight on this very interesting space. Well, Tyler, thanks for the invitation. I'm looking forward to our conversation and just delighted to be here. Wonderful. So maybe we can start off with just a basic question. Um, For those of us who don't know, can you say just a little bit about what microfinance is and how it actually works to try and address global poverty? Sure. At at its core, uh, microfinance is about bringing financial tools to people that wouldn't otherwise have access to them. So that's uh, small savings, small loans, small insurance and training. We like to think about it as a ladder. If you think about a ladder, that's helping people move up out of poverty, frequently it's missing the bottom two rungs. And microfinance is a way in which we can rebuild rungs on the ladder to help people that are living on a couple of dollars a day move up out of poverty. That's terrific. And can you tell me, is there anything unique about the approach that Opportunity International takes to this versus some other microfinance organizations that are out there? Well, I'd start by saying there's a lot of great microfinance organizations. So lots of people doing great work across the globe, and there's 200-plus million people that are being served across the globe with microfinance. Last year, Opportunity helped about 14 million people uh, have uh, the ability to transform their lives, their children's futures, and their communities. We like to think that we really are anchored in a couple of places. We like to go where others don't. Uh, we went to sub-Saharan Africa to start banks when nobody in their right mind was thinking you could run a savings-led institution in banking. We were innovating in the microinsurance space to provide life insurance for people when there was no way in the world you could think about how do you do life insurance in HIV-ravaged communities in sub-Saharan Africa, given the economics of of the market. Uh, We've started smallholder farmers, rural outreach, where the pure business economics from what they taught us here at Wharton uh, don't make sense if you can't really think about, boy, I know there's going to be changes in technology that are going to allow us to do that. So where opportunity really is unique is innovating at the base of the pyramid, listening to the customers and saying, how do we serve you? What are your needs? And let's figure it out together. That's really terrific. Now, one of the things that I've read that opportunity focuses on is entrepreneurship amongst your clientele. Could you talk a little bit about that and how venture creation feeds into poverty reduction? Sure. Let let me use, uh, I could use either of two examples, but I guess the one that's sort of nearest and dearest to my heart, which is also one of the the newer innovations, if you will, in the opportunity uh, portfolio, uh, Tyler, is that several years ago, uh, we were at a global conference in the Dominican Republic, and the woman that was running the program there, chief operating officer, was making loans to women that had started private schools. It was kind of interesting. Who's making loans to these are women that started schools because the kids in the Dominican Republic didn't have a chance to go to government schools if they didn't have a birth certificate? Well, long story short, but we ended up using that idea to go create a pilot to say, geez, elsewhere in the world, 
are there people trying to do private schools? These are private schools where the tuition per term may be $10, just to give people a sense of, you know, people starting schools on their back porches in uh, the outskirts of, of Kampala in Uganda, as an example, in, 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 uh, in Africa. Well, those entrepreneurs end up being really good banking clients, that by giving them loans and training, the chance for savings, they're creating a small business, a small business that helps educate kids, hires teachers, hires people that are preparing food, hires construction workers to build buildings. And I could take you to a school in Uganda where a woman started a school on her back porch and there are 900 children today in a three-story building. Well, that's an example of financing an entrepreneur that the entrepreneur is doing job creation and the job creation and the education of children is a key core to poverty alleviation, as I'm sure you know from all of your research. Yes, that's wonderful. Now, one of the things that you mentioned uh, was that you do training for entrepreneurs. Yep. Now, as someone who does training for entrepreneurs in a very different context, this is really interesting to right. me. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what you do pragmatically to support entrepreneurs in these countries that don't have some of the infrastructure and some of the, you know, the basic considerations that you need to start a venture, you know, in, in North America. Yeah, and, and I can do it in two different places. If I do where the pr predominance of our training occurs, uh, Opportunity's core operating model is called a trust group. We bring people together, 90-plus percent women. Uh, turns out that they're better clients. They pay back the loans well, and they take their profits and pour them back into food for the family and better housing and whatever. So most of the clients that we serve are women. But we bring them together in weekly or biweekly groups. And that group meeting gives us a chance to actually do some kind of business training. Now, these are basic business training, but it's things around customer skills. It's things about should you loan to your clients are you providing credit to your clients or what does it cost you to provide credit to your clients when you have a loan that you've borrowed from opportunity? So basic training around the value of savings, the value of customer service. It's core simple business to people that would be uh, in, in America or certainly at Wharton, but it's not core to the people that may never have had any kind of education in their own lives but they've had to become entrepreneurs. If I gave you the other example, go back to the woman leading the school. Well, she needs help in running a small business. She needs to know, okay, I'm hiring people. I'm trying to do things with a staff of 35 or 40, in her case, with all of the teachers and, and support staff supporting that school in Uganda. So what we're trying to do is to bring training to her to help her run a small business, which is much bigger than a typical microfinance business. And kind of some of the neat stuff we're doing right now is saying, how do we use technology? How do we use tablets and cell phones, which she now has access to? What kind of training can we bring to her? What kind of training can we bring to her teachers in order to help them be better at doing their jobs in the places in which they're administering to kids? So that's fascinating. Uh, so if I understand correctly, in these third world contexts, you're using tablets, iPads, technologies, you know, associated with the first world yeah. to deliver entrepreneurial training. So uh, is there a lot of access to this technology? Is this something that you, you know, can use to scale up in the third world? So it, it, it's interesting to just see over the last decade how much the world has has changed in the use of technology. So 
the, at the proprietor level, at the school proprietor level, there's access to this kind of technology. But even among our clients, even across India, across sub-Saharan Africa, well over two-thirds of our clients, and these are people living on a couple of dollars a day, have access to a cell phone. And it turns out if you think about it, what's really exciting is the pace in which uh, banking services are now being rolled out across technology. You'd know that in Kenya, you know, yeah. a greater yeah. – uh, uh, over 100 percent of the GDP, now it's total transaction volume, flows through cell phones in yeah. Kenya, which is at the at the tip of the spear, if you will, the furthest along. But Bangladesh, the same thing. I think BRAC is now perhaps have the, has the biggest program through its Bcash program with technology. And they're doing that because if you're a poor person living in the developing world – you have to get on a bus. You have to spend time. You're away from your business. You're away from your family. You could be gone for hours in order to go visit a bank or go get cash. Or you can have a bank in your hand with your cell phone as long as there's a cell tower nearby. So technology in the developing world is just rapidly surpassing anything that we're even doing in this country with the exception that smartphones aren't yet there. They're yeah. too expensive, which is part of the issue. And the other issue with smartphones is they chew up battery. And if you don't have access, if you're not on the grid, we have to solve the energy issue to solve the smartphone issue. Sure, sure. And do you get a sense that the entrepreneurship training that you're doing with these clients makes a difference in their businesses? We do. Uh, we do because uh, you, you just do basic uh, re- repayment rates and how are we helping people succeed. You know, our repayment rates across the globe are 98 to 99 percent. Now, I spent five years of my career with a large bank in America to be unnamed at this point. But I can <laughs> assure you that with our credit card portfolio in the U.S., we didn't touch anything like 98 to 99 percent repayment rates. Some of that is because you're helping people understand how to use credit properly, and that takes training. It, it, it's it, we, an opportunity. You, you, earlier, your question was, what's different about us? We have never thought it was just about providing savings and credit in the absence of training because we think then you're not equipping the people that are uneducated. They just haven't had the chance to learn how do you, what's the power of savings. Why is credit useful, and how do you get in trouble if you get over-indebted? How do you actually keep customers and build a business? Those kinds of core training concepts allow them to succeed, and we want them to move out of poverty. And without that kind of training, we think it's less likely that they could succeed. So from our start 45 years ago, we believed in the power of training plus credit savings insurance as what was required. And so if you've been involved in this for the past 45 years, you must have a, a very broad sense of how the trends have evolved in terms of, you know, microcredit, training, all of the rest. I mean, going right back to the genesis of the industry. Right. I mean, if you're looking across that historical scope, mm-hmm. you know, what impressions do you have about how the field has evolved? Has training evolved with it? Is this something that you still see? Or is it starting to be a situation where the commercialization of microfinance is leading to it looking more like traditional banks and some of this training maybe goes along out the door with that? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I, if, if I think about the industry, it's clear to me that the products have evolved and the innovation in the industry, I think, has evolved faster than the training has. Because, I, I mean, I've been around for 32 years, not the full 45 
but I've seen from individual loans to group loans to savings, nobody was doing savings early on, to uh, insurance, to these education and agriculture, smallholder farmer. So we've had huge growth in the types of, of products, but we haven't kept the evolution to do cutting edge training as much as I think we need to. And I think some of that is the cost structure of delivering training is expensive because you're bringing people. It's expensive for the clients to come together in weekly meetings, and it's expensive for us to send staff out there to do it. So I think that the technology now is giving us, the mobile technology is giving us an opportunity to turbocharge training and to allow training to catch up. And I think for the banks that you mentioned, which clearly want to do more in this space, there's several billion people on earth living on less than $2 a day. The future markets for our financial, big financial institutions are still in that level of, of billions of people. For them to help these people succeed as good customers, they know they need training. We need a cost-effective way to deliver training so that they become good customers and move up out of poverty. That's just terrific. So I want to pivot back a little bit to another question about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. As someone who's involved with this, you know, at the Wharton School, you see a lot of ventures, you see a lot of ideas, good and bad. And one of the characteristics of these is that most fail. Is this something you see with these micro enterprises? And if so, how do you deal with losing your money with an entrepreneur? Well, it does. I mean, one of the things about the power of the model, the operating model, is that because we start small, we start with uh, the average first-time loan is around $180. So it's a small amount of money. It's put into a group setting where people are mutually supporting one another. They're guaranteeing one another so the repayment rates can be supported because others in the community make sure that the business succeeds. But where people from the outside may not see the power of this model is – in the developing world, Tyler, if you were sick and you couldn't go to your market stall on that day, that would mean that you don't have any income for that day, which means that you don't have any income to buy food for your family for that day. Now, if you weren't in a group, you wouldn't have somebody that may be able to step in and help support your business. Maybe they'll be in the market stall next to you and they'll handle your business for the day while you're sick. You're in the same trust group because you've mutually guaranteed one another. They'll also share their tips about how they're succeeding and growing their business with newer people that are part of these trust groups. So you, you minimize the risk early on. And then the natural entrepreneurs, the people that really have the ability to grow and scale businesses, migrate out of a group-based lending into an individual loan. And those go up over time so that you're, you're watching the risk profile as people prove that they have a business model that succeeds, as they get more money and as they have more income, they get larger loans, they get to the point they're hiring people and growing a business. That's kind of the way you're managing the riskiness of microfinance. And with these lending groups, mm -hmm. are there any considerations that you have when you're putting together the groups? Do you try and keep women with women or men with men or people from certain clans and castes together? Or is this... You know, these are the people who came and wanted a loan, and we put them together, and, and that's how it goes. Yeah, it's a great question. There, there's a bit of art and science uh, to it uh, because 90-plus percent of our clients are women. They still tend to be women. In some countries, they're 100 percent women. In other countries, it's mixed gender. Um, you're trying to build group cohesion where people are going to work with one another. But one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in my life 
is when we started in Rwanda more than a decade ago right now. That was post-genocide. Some of your yeah. uh, <coughs> viewers may be familiar with the Hotel Rwanda, which was the movie version of the atrocities that, that were just so devastating to that country. But as you're there today to see the transformative power of people that have committed to reconciliation and working together, it's absolutely transformational to you as a person that might visit it. In our trust groups in Rwanda, there are people that are working together, helping one another succeed, mutually guaranteeing one another's loans, and they would have been in the two opposite tribes back in the day. Really? And those people are working together. So the power of reconciliation and putting groups together, that art and science shows we believe that the part of the work that we do, which is really helping to transform communities, is building bridges where previously there could have been hostility. And so when you're looking at doing things like building communities mm -hmm. and addressing poverty as the outcomes of your efforts, yeah. uh, th this gets into one of the really tricky things in any sort of social outreach, which is how do you assess your impact? Yeah. Uh, can you give me some insight into what Opportunity is doing to try and line up cause and effect and actually show that you're moving the needle on this yeah. stuff? Yeah, it's, uh, you sound like a donor. <laughs> um, throughout history, for as long as we've been around, uh, Opportunity has always talked about that we have a triple bottom line. So unlike most people that go to Wharton, they're used to one bottom line. We say, no, we, we, we think there's three that we care about. The first, everybody would understand. There's financial performance. Are you sustainable in the nonprofit world? Do your revenues exceed cost? If you can you continue in business? And the truth is the opportunity model is sustainable. So if we didn't raise another donor dollar, the microfinance institutions in the field would continue because their revenues exceed costs. So they're operating businesses and the model of a donor dollar that helps them grow more rapidly allows them to continue to serve. So first bottom line is financial performance. Second for us was one around scale. So how many people are we serving? And for all of 45 years, if you said how many clients does Opportunity serve any given point in time, we could tell you. Today, we're actually serving 14 million people. Back when Kim and I wrote our first check, we were serving 1,000 people, 1983. So that's been wow. some pretty phenomenal growth. But to your question, then people would say, but what's going on in the lives of our clients? So the third bottom line for us we call transformation. What are the outcomes that we're achieving, that our clients are achieving in their lives, their children's futures, and their communities? And for most of history, I could regale you with story after story of fabulous life change around the people who have opportunity today that didn't before and how their kids are in school and they're in a better place, but I couldn't give you metrics. But in the last three, four years, and, and I was part of the core team that was really pushing on this, again, the power of technology. We started to equip our loan officers with tablets or cell phones so that when they're going out to visit clients, we're actually collecting client data. We're able to collect, does the client have a cement floor? Are the kids in school? In particular, are the girls in school? Because very frequently, the girls are the ones left behind. Go fetch water, do the things that the girls can do because it's, you're not important in the society is the cultural thing that we're trying to break that uh, sense of, uh, of not uh, having the girls be important. And with the use of technology, we're then able to track What's the status of people from a whole range of social metric dimensions? 
Now your academic colleagues are going to say, can you prove causality? And I'll say, I can't prove causality, but I can show over time, and we have reports on our website, opportunity.org, that would show our, we call it social performance management. We'll show you what percentage of clients have access to potable water today that didn't have potable water. What percentage of our clients have kids in school that didn't have kids in school previously? What's the nutritional situation? Do they have toilets? Huge chunk of the world where we serve, there's no access to uh, toilets in many of the countries in the rural regions in which we serve. So we're able to now start capturing that data and then track it because our clients stay with us. The client retention rates are phenomenal across the opportunity portfolio. And as long as, Tyler, you were a client that was with us, we track you over time. And again, can't prove causality, but we have lots and lots of correlations. So you're a client of ours and you're moving up out of poverty. You're getting above that $2 a day of income and moving yourself and your family forward. That's really wonderful stuff. And so when you start with your clients and you start giving them small loans and getting them on the path to success, Mm -hmm. then graduate them to larger loans, do you ever get them to the point where you graduate them into the formal financial system? Yeah, and, and historically, we used to say, geez, we're not going to serve them. We'd, uh, we'd work up to a certain level, and then they'd go off to be the, the bigger banks, the ones that anybody could name that are working in Africa. And it was funny. Our clients would come back to us, including this woman that was at the school I mentioned earlier, and she said, wait a minute. Those banks wouldn't serve me when I was starting my business. Not only would they not serve me, I wouldn't be welcome in their lobby because I'm a, you know, woman in the rural area and I don't have any assets. So why would I want to go to them now instead of serving, continue to be served by you? So that has forced us to say we think we need to stay with our clients for a longer time period now. And some of our clients will be with us for a very long time and have certainly multi-thousand dollar loans. This particular woman would be tens of thousands. Now, that's unusual. We don't have lots of clients up, up there uh, at that end of the spectrum. But it has caused us strategically to shift to serve clients that are individual loan clients that have more resources now because they built successful businesses that we never would have served back in 20 years ago. And then are you able to use some of the revenue from those bigger loans to finance further social outreach, or does this just sort of get rolled into the bottom line and increases the health of the organization? It, it, it really is. The, the, the bigger loans and the, the ability to serve clients that are, you know, in pure Wharton terms, more profitable uh, allows us to make sure that we can keep reaching down to those clients that are under $2 a day. I mean, our core mission is how do we help to eradicate extreme poverty. That's what really gets so many of us excited. And the people living on less than $2 a day are really, really hard to serve and expensive to serve. One of one of my uh, colleagues who ran our African operation for many, many years, worked for a big bank for 20 plus years in his career and came to me one day and he said, David, you know what you're paying me to do today? And I said, no, Colin, what am I paying you to do today? Well, In my old job, all of the clients that I had to get rid of because they weren't profitable, those are the clients you want me to go find and serve. (laughs) So I said, good, you got it right. (laughs) So this finding the clients thing is interesting. So you said that the people living on $2 or less a day are expensive to to lend to. Uh, Are they also expensive to find? Yeah. uh, 
Yes and no. If you're out in the community, if you're out working in the places that we work, it's not that you can't find people. It's that certainly in the rural areas, it's expensive because you're still sending staff out into less densely populated areas. So the core microfinance model that others do, and we have done many urban-based settings, the pure economics of the model work really well. If you can find a 1,000 clients within 100 yards of where you're sitting, which you can in India and Bangladesh, Indonesia, places in the world that are really densely populated, the economics of the model work better. When we start going to rural outreach in India, rural outreach in Africa, then the economics become more difficult. So it's not that it's hard to find them, but the but finding the number that you need per hour of staff time changes. So, you know, the economic model becomes the challenge. Okay, so, so the demand's there. You just have to have the, the boots on the ground to go serve it. Yeah, yeah, okay. you got it. That's terrific. Now, looking ahead, where do you see microfinance going in general mm. and opportunity specifically? Yeah, well, uh, and I, I think we're still sort of among the leaders in, in the pack here. We've said, and I think the industry understands, that the power of microfinance and the ability to do that rural outreach, the ability to drive costs down, to get training out through, through things is based on technology. So w- we think that the future really is around what's the role of technology and banking coming together. People may be familiar with the term fintech. It stands for financial technology. And we've agreed to a partnership that will be uh, uh, part of our our banks in Africa will now be uh, owned by a fintech company. So opportunity sort of at the forefront of this this change because when we looked at what it was going to take to serve clients and to make sure that we could do it with safety and security for their funds, to make sure that we could do the outreach, to do the growth that we needed, to do all the regulatory compliance, we have to meet all the anti-money laundering rules and and, uh, terrorist uh, things that all banks have to do, we have to do all those same things too because we're running regulated financial institutions. So we think the future around financial technology, bringing that into the microfinance, marrying it together, finding ways that as the clients move increasingly to the cell phones, smartphones will start to penetrate. All of that allows the fintech uh, partnership to allow us to serve more clients more cost effectively. And if we want to reach those 2 billion people on earth living on a couple of dollars a day, that's the way we think we can do it. And I think others in the industry also are spending a lot of time and attention now saying, how do we do this? We know we have to. How do we do it? All right. Well, I think that is a, a perfect note to end on, uh, inspirational and challenging at the same time. David, thank you so much for taking your time to be with us here today and sharing your insight on microfinance and really the vision for how to address poverty using these financial tools. Thanks very much. Tyler, thank you. Really appreciate it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.